If you would, would you take your Bibles and let's turn together to Leviticus chapter 11. And as we do so, um, as we turn there, we're just going to be looking at a few short verses, verses 44 to 47. The reason why we're taking that one is that's an important uh, short passage of Scripture, but it also sets the stage and the framework for 11 through 15 that we'll be covering next Sunday. And then as well as the holiness code that comes after that and so forth. But it really sets the stage and the framework uh, for those parts of Leviticus um, as well as the whole. But if you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Leviticus 11 verses 44 to 47. This is the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, indeed, this is your word. Would you now take your word and meet it with your spirit in our hearts? And would you mold us and make us into the men, women, children that you've called us to be? Oh Lord, would you, we ask, would you open our eyes and our ears? Would you enlighten our minds? Would you even bend our wills to yours? Lord, may we be so bold to ask, would you this morning have your way with us? Change our hearts, soften them. And may we be the people that you've called us to be. So Lord, work in us, we ask. In the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. We sing that quite often, don't we? It's a familiar and wonderful hymn. Holy, holy, holy is the call of the seraphim to one another in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Is the never ceasing praise of the four living creatures that are gathered around the throne in heaven as we see in Revelation chapter 4. Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Repeating that three times is a way in the Hebrew of emphasizing that reality. It would be like us putting, putting it as we type it or on our computer or in our phone or whatever. It would be like us maybe putting it in, in bold letters. God is Holy. Maybe like us putting two or three or four exclamation points after that sentence. God is holy. It may even be like us saying something like, God is really, really, really holy. 
holy, holy, holy. Did you know it's the only attribute of God that is repeated like that? It doesn't say that God is righteous, 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 or that he's love, 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 or that he's gracious, 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 but holy, holy, holy. But what are we saying when we say that? What does it mean when we say that God or that the, when the scripture says that God is holy? Is it just another way of saying that he's righteous or that he's just or that he's gracious or that he's kind, that he's long suffering or, or is it that he's good? It is that God is holy in all that he is. It is that God is holy in all those things. Those other attributes of God do not need to be repeated to emphasize them because God is holy in his justice. Because God is holy in his righteousness. Because God is holy in his love. He's holy in his long suffering. To put it another way, we might say it this way. His love is a holy love. Why? Because it's the holy love of a holy God. His forgiveness is a holy forgiveness. His grace is a holy grace. And they can be no other because God is holy. And still yet, what exactly does that mean? That he's holy. It means that he is altogether set apart. He is altogether separate. He is altogether different. He is indeed holy other. And this is part, part of the reason why all of this ritual, the consecrating, the setting apart of the priests, the setting apart of the tabernacle, the setting apart of even the utensils that are to be used in the tabernacle, all of that setting apart. Why? Setting them apart from their common use, their everyday use, to this, their holy use. Because there is a difference. There is a difference between the common and the holy. In the first service, we got to participate in a baptism where Brandon prayed that God would take this element, this common everyday element of water and set it apart from its common use to this, its holy use. Here in just a little while, we're going to come to the Lord's table where I'm going to pray that God will take these common elements of bread and wine, things that we do every day. We have every day. And yet they are set apart from their common use to their holy use. Why? Because there's a difference between the common and the holy. If we want to begin to understand the depth and the length to which God has gone for sinners like you and me, we begin, we begin with the difference between God and us the holy, and the common. 
We don't like to think of ourselves in that way, do we? Common, ordinary people. That's what we are. God is holy. We are very ordinary. When we think of God's condescension, we often think that it is because of the estate into which man fell in sin. That that's why it was such a big deal for God to condescend. And indeed, and indeed, it makes matters even more grand and even more wonderful. But it was a condescension for God to walk and to talk with Adam and Eve even in the garden before sin. In their upright state. They were the creature and God the creator. There is a difference between God and his creation. That seems simple, doesn't it? Of course we hear that and we say, well, of course there is. But does that truth make its way into our heart and the decisions that we make, the way that we speak, the way that we think, the way that we act? Even the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, which I referenced a few moments ago, as we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, even the angels, they had six wings, we're told. Why six? Two to cover their, their face. Two to fly. And two to cover their feet. Why to cover their face? Because they were in the presence of the all holy God. Why two to fly? To carry out his will and his purpose. But why to cover their feet? Because their feet were a sign of their creatureliness. Even the angels serving the Lord in His presence, apart from the estate of the sinfulness of man, even in the throne room of God, even the angels cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. As we read from, in our call to worship from Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Brothers and sisters, again, it may seem silly. It may seem obvious. God is different. He sits above all things. He is perfect in all that he does. He is separate. He is holy. And yet, in a remarkable command and expectation, we find here in our text, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate your the, uh, yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. I have three hopes for us this morning. One, as we've begun already, that we would see the wonder and the glory of the holiness of God. Two, that we would see how and why Leviticus 11 to 15, is, as well as the holiness code to come that we'll come to in a few weeks, fits within God's purposes for His glory 
and for his people. And three, that we'll see how this call for God's people is applied to the believer today. And we're going to do this by looking at the text in two ways. I know there were three hopes, but we're going to see those three hopes in these two ways. We're going to do so by moving from the indicative to the imperative. That is to say, from that which is, that which has been declared, that which is indicated, to the command or the imperative that flows from it. So I'm going to call our divisions this. You'll see them there in your bulletin in the outline. For I am holy, that's the indicative part. Therefore, you be holy, the imperative part. Let's look first to the indicative for I am holy. And I want us to notice the first words of verses 44 and 45, because as we notice there, they begin in the same way. And they begin with this, for I am the Lord. For I am the Lord. And this really ought to. It ought to frame our thinking concerning what we learn here in this passage. And not only, not only here in this short text, but also what we find here in the, in the entire book of Leviticus. And even bigger than that, what we find in all of the scripture. For that matter, in all of life. That is to say, God is the Lord. He has the sovereign right to demand and command everything that he does. For after all, as we've already learned, he is holy in all he does. God has every right and privilege and authority to do so. And his commands, even his commands are holy. Even his commands are different and they're set apart. You know, we may read some of these things that we've been reading through Leviticus and even things to come over the next several weeks. And we may say, sometimes, I don't understand all of this. That's okay. We may read some of it and we go, gosh, Lord, this is so particular and so precise. Why, God, did you command these things? Why, why would God require this or why would God forbid that? We might ask those questions. But even as we ask those questions, we can rest assured then that whatever he requires and whatever he forbids, he has the authority to do so. And whatever he requires or forbids in doing so, he is right and he is just. Those things are right and just because he is right and just. He is holy in his righteousness. He is holy in his justice. He's the creator of all things. He is the creator and we are the creature. Again, that seems so elementary, doesn't it? And I know that I've said that before and I will probably say it again even this morning. But it's good for us to be reminded of that truth. It's good for us to be reminded of that even within the life of the church. Because we tend to forget it. We tend to give lip service when we, uh, to God's authority and to God's sovereignty. But we often do so when it serves our purpose or when it doesn't interfere with our own sense of right and wrong or our own sense of what is just and unjust. Often we speak of God's right or of his sovereign freedom 
And we'll give a nod to it because of its inescapable biblical truth. It's everywhere in the pages of the Word of God. That God is sovereign, that He's the Creator, that He has every right to demand what He demands. But when it comes down to it, we the creature often act as if we are the one who gets to define reality. That we get to define what's right and what's wrong. R.C. Sproul said, he said, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. And isn't that often the case? May we not be a people that simply salute the sovereignty of God, but may we be a people who bow the knee to the sovereign rule and authority of the Lord. And yet we even struggle with that, don't we, as God's people? Sometimes we question his justice. We question his actions as we read about them or even as we experience them in life. We question his commands. God certainly couldn't have meant that, we say. We live in the 21st century. These things were written over 2,000 years ago, we argue. And we're tempted. We're tempted to buy that lie, aren't we? And as I often remind us, it's easy. We, we look out into the world and we see how the world does this. We see how the world acts in complete opposition to God, claiming that right is wrong, front is back, back is front, and, and up is down, down is up. And we look at the world around us, and sometimes the world is just an easy target, isn't it? Because even as we look at the things in the world, sometimes it's even irrational. It doesn't even make any sense. And we think as the church, man, how far away from the Lord is the world. Brothers and sisters, I would also say that I hope when we look at the world that it's simple for us to see. I hope that we've not been informed by the church and, such, and by the world in such a way that we don't see when up is down and down is up. When we don't see how they say that right is wrong and wrong is right. I hope it is that simple for us to see. And if it's not that simple for us to see, we ought to examine our own hearts. We ought to examine our own understanding of the word of God. Because indeed, it is sometimes just even irrational. I mean, we see Romans 1 before our very eyes. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And listen to this part. And worshipped, the cre- worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They became fools because they ignore and rebel 
against the Creator. They fail to recognize the Creator-creature distinction. That God is God and we are not. And that should be easy to see out there. And yet, and yet, even in the church, we've allowed the world to inform the church. We're tempted to begin to question God and His Word. We're tempted to want to please the world rather than pleasing God. We do this as a church, and we do this as individuals who make up the church. You know that struggle, that desire to please man and to be seen in their eyes as something that that they would uh, put up on a pedestal. We're tempted to think that we can synthesize the world and its wisdom or its ideas with that of God's word as if we can come up with a better way than what God has commanded. We struggle with that. We're tempted to do that even within the life of the church. We sometimes need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 9 of Romans just as much as we want the world to hear them. We We want to look at the world and say, oh, the world is upside down. Oh, the world needs to do this. The world needs to do that. And we and we too often fail to turn the word of God to our own lives and our own hearts. And what are those words from Romans 9 that maybe even those in the church need to hear? Maybe even ministers in the church of the Lord Jesus need to hear. Maybe you and I, as we sit and think and ponder ourselves in the life of this world, in the the midst of this world, maybe we need to hear the rebuke of Paul as well, where Paul says, Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? There are times that we need to be reminded of that as well. And not just throwing the darts and the arrows at the world around us. Because brothers and sisters, they know no different. We should expect no different from the world around us. For after all, here in Leviticus, to whom is he speaking? To whom is he speaking? He's not speaking to the world around Israel. He's speaking to Israel. Certainly, the creator-creature distinction is ultimate. And yes, God reigns over all things. God reigns over the kingdom of man as well as the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice something here. Because there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Notice something here. He says, for I am the Lord. In verse 44, it's I am the Lord your God. In verse 45, it's just I am the Lord. Notice in your English Bibles. Look look there if you've got them. Notice there how the word Lord is written. And it's written in all caps. Big L. Big O, big R, big D. 
I've taught you this before, but it's good to do so again. It's good for us to be reminded of this. When you see Lord written in all caps, that's a different Hebrew word than if it is written just with a capital L. They're both Lord in the English, but there's a difference of meaning in the Hebrew. With a capital L and then little O-R-D, it means Lord and Master. It means He is the Lord of all the earth, as it were. And certainly the Scripture teaches us that He is. He is the Creator of all things. He is the Lord of all things. But all caps, Lord, means something different. It refers to the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh. You've heard that before. It's the covenant name of God. God is the covenant-keeping God. You see, what we see here is that the Lord is speaking to His covenant people as His people and He as their God. We see that specifically in verse 45 where He says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. This is wonderful here. This is the indicative part of the pa uh, passage here because this is the reality. God as Lord of all the earth has every authority and right to command as He pleases from all of His creation and all of His creation stands under the law of God and yet, and yet, the command to be holy is to His covenant people. Let me say that again. This command to be holy is to His covenant people. Because it is a command, but it's also an invitation of sorts. And you say, what do you mean by that? Because it is, it's only His people who can do so. It's only His people who can do so. There is a difference between that which is created and its creator. Yes, but notice, God is calling His people as part of the creation to be different, to be set apart, and to be holy in the midst of the rest of creation. That's the wonder of it. Yes, He's commanding them to be holy, but He's commanding His people to be holy because they are His people. He's calling them out of the world. And we can, rem we can think of even New Testament passages that have this same, this same language. We are not of the world. His kingdom is not of this world. He has bought them. He has redeemed them. He has brought them out of Egypt to belong to Him. And since they belong to Him, since they belong to Him, and only because they belong to Him, they are to be holy even as He is holy. All these rituals and particularly here in chapter 11, all of these food laws 
These dietary restrictions, all of these distinctions between the clean and the unclean are there to set apart the people of God from the world around them. They are to be different. Brothers and sisters, we are to be different than the world around us. These laws here, if you were to read all of, uh, uh, all of uh, Leviticus 11, you would find all of these dietary laws. But these laws, this diet isn't primarily health related. I know that we've heard it before and some of us even may need to be challenged in this a little bit. I mean, you can just go online and you can Google the Daniel diet and it'll show you. Eat like Daniel. Eat like Daniel. There's another one called the Bible diet. A couple of years ago, Chris Pratt, who was in Guardians of the Galaxy, if you want to know who he is, he came out with the Daniel Fast diet. You can go find those. And I'm not saying, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that there aren't health considerations involved with Israel's diet or, or even that there may not be a lot to learn by studying how they ate and how they didn't eat. But that's not its purpose. Its purpose is not to tell God's people simply how to eat. Its purpose was to set apart God's people as those who belonged to Him. That was the purpose. And that's the, that's the therefore part here, isn't it? Therefore, be holy as I am holy. You as the people of God in both the Old and New Testaments are to be set apart. And in the Old Testament, while the people of God were a nation, this was demonstrated to a, to a watching world in all the cultic practices of that particular nation. That's how they were set apart. That's how they were to be known to be different. And that's not to say that that was distinct from a, 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 um, a heart that also longed after the Lord. We've learned that over and over again. We even were reminded of that last week with the priests who were in the temple with Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord and they were struck dead. And the other two who, who disobeyed the Lord by not doing what he'd commanded and yet they weren't struck dead. What do we learn there? We learned that the heart matters before the Lord. So it wasn't just that these ritual things is how they, is, is all it was about. No, not at all. It wasn't apart from a heart that longed after the things of God. The heart has always been the matter before the Lord. But for Israel, their diet, what they ate, what they didn't eat, along with all these other rituals, the things that you'll learn about in the weeks to come, they serve to make distinct the people of God from the world around them. They were different and they were called to be different. And even as we think about these dietary laws and we think, well, what, I mean, why those? Well, think about how we get to know, with one, uh, get to know one another. Think about how we relate to one another. Often that happens around food, doesn't it? I went to a banquet the other night for Campus Crusade where our own Jordan and Mandy Oaf serve at the Arkansas campus. And by the way, what a great encouragement that was to hear of the work of the Lord Jesus there. 
What a great encouragement to hear of this ministry and to see young men and young ladies coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be part of that. And just by the way, if you want more information about that, see Jordan and Mandy. He loves to talk about the Lord and His work and particularly how that's done through Campus Crusade. But even there, back to the banquet, even there at the banquet, if everyone else was eating one thing, but just mine was different. Think about it, just, just me. I'm at my table and if somebody were serving us, a waiter or a waitress came up and said, here's your food. And I said, oh, no, 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 thank you. I cannot have that. I do not eat that. I cannot eat that because the Lord who rescued me requires me not to. What does that do? Immediately it sets me apart from the rest of my table. Immediately it sets me apart from the rest of everybody there because they are eating that and I say no. Why? Because I'm different. I'm called to be different. That would make a distinction between me and those around me. It would set me apart from the others there. Well, same way these things here serve to make the distinction that God's people, God's people were different than the world around them. They were set apart from the world in which they lived. Now we might ask the question, right, and we should, but what about today? On this side of the cross? On this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit? On this side of on this side of, of Acts chapter 10 and the Lord doing away with those types of distinctions because in Christ they've been declared clean. On this side of history where these laws have been abrogated in the Lord Jesus, where we have the freedom to eat or drink or be involved in things where, where Israel would not have been. So what is it today that separates us from the world. What is it today that makes that distinction? Because after all, this isn't just a command that we find in Leviticus chapter 11. We find it in several places in the scripture. In fact, we find it in 1 Peter 1, as, as Matt read it in our New Testament reading. Be holy, for I am holy. As God's people, again, both knew, both then and now, we are called to be holy. And notice how Peter says it. If we were to turn to 1 Peter 1 verse 14, it says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, not just in what you eat or drink. Not just in this area or that area, but in all your conduct. Now, there are some things that we as the church, that we do in practice, in ritual, that set us apart from the world. From the world. One of those we did in the first service, or actually two of them we did in the first service. One of them we'll do here. We baptize those who are part of this church and they are set apart. We come to the Lord's table and we feed upon Christ by the giving of bread and wine. Those things set us apart from the world around us. 
We meet every Sunday to worship our God, to praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit every Sunday. We put ourselves under the preaching of the Word. We enjoy the means of grace together. Those things are different than the world around us. God also calls us as His people to be different in all our conduct, to be holy in all our conduct, to be different in the world. And the world ought to know that we are different. I remember as a kid growing up in youth group that one of my youth ministers used to say, I think it was a youth minister, I may be mistaken, it may have been somebody else, but used to ask the question, said, if you were ever to be arrested on the charge of being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a fair question, isn't it? Is my life any different than the lives of those around me who do not claim the name of the Lord Jesus? The world ought to know that we're different. And not because you don't eat a certain meat. And not because you don't have tattoos. Not because you don't drink a certain drink. Not because you dress in a certain way. Because brothers and sisters, you can be, you can be absolutely precise in what you eat. And you can dress to the nines wherever you go. And you can abstain from drinking certain drinks. And you can never have a piercing and never have a tattoo. And you can even quote the Ten Commandments and the laws that you think you live by. And you may be no different than the world around you where it matters. In fact, you may follow a law in which you think you are justified and you may still be far from the Lord. You may, in fact, be like the Pharisee following the law, but ignoring the weightier matters of the law. You know the one, the one who passes by the half-dead man and doesn't stop to help because he's following the law. He argues. And in our lives, it may not be that obvious. Right? It may not be that obvious. It may be in more subtle ways. It may be demanding of others adherence to your own understanding of the word, while at the same time you excuse yourself from the clear demands of the word of God. It may be that. It's a self-righteousness, isn't it? It may be that you demand of others as if you care about the word, but demonstrate in your actions not the fruit of the spirit, but in fact the fruit of the flesh, just like the world around you. And the scripture is clear of what those fruit are. The fruit of the flesh is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, envy, 
drunkenness. Instead of the fruit of the Spirit. And what are those? Paul tells us those, doesn't he, in Galatians chapter 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. How do we, as the text says, consecrate ourselves? Set apart ourselves because we've been set apart by reflecting God's character. By obedience to His Word. By walking by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. How are we set apart as holy? By walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. By bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever stopped to think why that's His name? Because in sanctification, His role is to make us more holy. Oh yes, He's holy. But He's holy, holy, holy. But His role is to make us holy. To work in us that we might die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We are called to holiness. As our God, the one who has redeemed us by the blood of His Son, the one who has called us from death to life, from darkness to light, and not to live in that darkness, and not to live no different than those who are bumping around in that darkness, but to live as those who live in the light of life. As Christians, we're called to live in accord with whose we are. And that wasn't a grammar mistake because it's not just who we are. It's called to live, called to live in accord with whose we are because we belong to Him who is holy. Because we've been bought with a price because our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus through His life, death, and resurrection, His ascension, and His sitting at the right hand of God the Father of Almighty. We have been brought from the bondage of sin to live in His glorious light and to live holy lives set apart, not to obtain a standing, Oh, don't get me wrong. Not to obtain a standing, not so that we can go to heaven, not so that we can have a standing before the Lord, but because we've already been given that standing in Christ. But to live in the standing that we already have in the Lord Jesus because we've been set apart in Him. Oh, that's the imperative, isn't it? Be holy. Be holy. Now, I... Hardly ever end a Sunday sermon with an imperative. By just simply saying to you, okay, everybody, go for it. Be holy. Because I don't know about you, but I know for me, if that's all I got, I don't have the strength to do that. But I am going to end there today. I'm going to end there today with the imperative 
I just can't do it. I'll say the indicative again because the imperative rests on the indicative. The call is to be holy, yes. But why? For I am holy. Because your God who saved you is holy. And he calls you to be holy for I am holy. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, we thank you. And this is, that's, that's challenging for us to hear, Lord. Hopefully it causes us to examine our hearts. Hopefully it causes us to see if we have taken in our, ourselves the so-called wisdom of the world. Or maybe it's just that we judge the world without ever examining our own hearts. Or maybe even we just judge everybody else even within the church without examining our own hearts. Because we believe that we actually sit on that throne rather than you, our creator, God. So Lord, work in our hearts, we ask. Help us to live in accord with whose we are. For we belong to you. And for that, we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.